the court as currently constituted is intent on dismantling our democracy. And so if we want to preserve our democracy, if we want to preserve or reattain our fundamental rights, we have to change the structure of this court. And so the work might be hard, but we have to do it. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Sarah Lipton Lubet, the executive director of Take Back the Court. Take Back the Court is working to inform the public about the danger that the Supreme Court poses to democracy, and further that adding seats to the court, in their view, is the only strategy that fixes the situation. Sarah's previously worked as an advocate for reproductive freedom, gender equity, and progressive change at the National Partnership for Women and Families. She's worked at the ACLU, the NRDC, and the Religious Action Center for Reform Judaism. All this after Yale Law School and clerking both in a U.S. District Court and then at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. If you're concerned about our right-wing Supreme Court and how to change it, you should listen to Sarah. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Sarah Lipton-Lubet with Take Back the Court. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Sarah, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Hi, I'm Sarah Lipton-Lubet. I am the executive director of Take Back the Court and Take Back the Court Action Fund, where we work on Supreme Court expansion all the time. My background before that is in the reproductive rights movement. You're a lawyer, right? I am. I am a lawyer. I am a lawyer. (laughs) Could you tell me a little bit about the path that you took to law school? How'd you grow up and go to college and why that road? When I started, it'll probably become obvious. My parents met teaching law school. So it was definitely in the ether, in the household. I grew up caring a lot about social justice, about advocacy, with a pretty strong feeling that 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 was going to be the path and law school, you know, presented itself uh, as it does for for many young folks coming out of college trying to figure out how they want to interact with the world. What had you majored in in as an undergraduate? American studies, so like a mix of history, sociology, poli sci. Yeah, a good grounding for law school. What was your experience in law school like? I loved law school. I know that's maybe not the most common description. 
but I just absolutely drank it in. My classmates were so smart and interesting and they had done, you know, all, all sorts of interesting things before coming to law school. I mostly, mostly went straight through to the little bit of advocacy before I went. And I just had so much to learn from them. I think really immersed myself in this legal elite culture, for, for lack of a better word. And that is something that I have had to work really hard to unlearn over time, but to not automatically like deify the Supreme Court, the courts, and really think about how are they impacting society? How are they working in a real way? You know, I think you come out of law school often and you're just or at least in the old days when I went, um, and you're just kind of set up to revere them um, without really pressing on things harder. So that's what you meant by unlearn. You had to yep. unlearn yep. the sort of raising them up a level. They have robes. And these decisions that they made have such repercussions that we should count the words very carefully and how they're written. That's the, the culture you came out of? That is the culture that I came out of. That culture is changing. It's changing in law schools. And to be clear, like students then took a very critical look at things, but I think all, all the more so now. Does it serve society when we do have some sense of looking up to the, to the courts and the legal system because we have to often abide by what they come down with? How do you think about the hazard of it goes right to what you're up to, really, like of trying to keep the right amount of reverence for a very human institution. It's such an important question. And it's such a difficult question. Maybe always has been, but but right now, particularly so. It's something that, that we definitely grapple with and come up against in the work for court reform. The rule of law um, is something to have reverence for it is or should be a fundamental building block of our society. But the way that the courts have become politicized, and many scholars will argue that it, it was always this way, the way that courts have become so clearly and brazenly politicized now, that kind of false veneer of reverence to like prop up an institution that doesn't deserve it, I think is really, really problematic. And that's one of the things that, you know, at Take Back the Court, um, we try to uncover, unfurl, ed educate um, folks about. It feels like we've been going through a process, maybe repeatedly in our history, but, you know, since the 50s of examining our institutions and finding them to come short in careful inspection. And I think that boundary between undermining them by pointing that out and reforming them, it's not just the courts, it's the media, it's the Congress. If you look at the polling on almost any important institution, they've dropped from well thought of by the public to the opposite. And here we are with everything thrown up in the air to some extent. If you want institutions that have people's trust, the institutions need to deserve them, 
right? And they need, they need to do the, the hard work of deserving and cultivating that trust. Yeah. And of course, what the trust is depends on the point of view of the observer. Well, somebody lost trust in the Supreme Court when they decided Roe v. Wade in the way that probably you and I agree with in the early 70s. And other people lost trust just the other day when it went the other way. If you look at the time in context, Roe was not a controversial decision at the time. It certainly was for a minority of the country. Check me on this. I'm a little rusty. Seven justices and the majority in that opinion. And it really was, I, I point this out because it really was a concerted effort, a concerted political effort over time um, to, to put that case, to put abortion rights and, and women's rights um, and racial justice, you know, at the center of an effort to radically change the courts, um, that effort by the Federalist Society and others, certainly the, the anti-abortion movement. But that was not organic. That was not organic. That was a, a political effort that tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions of dollars have gone into, political effort has gone into over decades to shape the way that the courts act now and the way that we think about some of these decisions in the past. So certainly, was was everyone on board with Roe? Of course not. You can see that. But I think we do ourselves a disservice when we don't understand and acknowledge the decades of political campaigning that went into that. So after you came out of Yale Law School, where you enjoyed your time so much and learned, I'm sure, a ton. What was your path into the, the working world and what kind of things did you do? I started out working for judges, as so many law students do when they come out of school. And so really, when I say respect for the courts was deeply ingrained in me, it certainly was. I clerked on the federal district court in Boston for a, a phenomenal judge, and then on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals for another incredible judge and people who just take so absolutely seriously the trust that is is put in them, their role in the institutions and the systems, so careful, so thoughtful. Those were formative experiences for me in learning more about how the legal system works, but also what kind of lawyer do I want to be? What kind of thinker do I want to be? How do I want to approach um, this work? So I clerked for a few years. Who was the judge in the Ninth? In the Ninth Circuit, at Richard Paez. Just recently took senior status, I believe. And a liberal uh, circuit. At the time? Yep. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it's changed a lot. Been a lot of appointments since I was there. To, to someone who might be in law school or thinking about it, what would you tell them about the clerking experience or why you should do it or not do it? You know, honestly, I don't know. And I should because I get this question from law students and, and interns and other folks that I get to interact with. And I think far too much focus is put on it by law schools or at least was at the time. 
when I was there. It was an amazing experience. I had, you know, the opportunity to work for these incredible people, as I shared, but it's been almost entirely irrelevant to my career as an advocate. And it really gets set up as the holy grail in a way that I think is is overstated. So if you're a law student and you're listening to this, I would say, you know, figure out if it's for you and if you think you would enjoy it. And if you wouldn't, do not worry about it at all. Well, tell me about your move into advocacy and uh, which I think is a lot about reproductive rights, which we've already broached a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I've been involved in, in reproductive rights work my entire career, pretty much. Coming out of college, I worked at the Religious Action Center for Reform Judaism, which is the DC office of the Union for Reform Judaism. And I worked primarily on reproductive rights issues while I was there and also on on judicial nominations, which clearly are very related. I had the privilege of interning at the ACLU Reproductive Freedom Project during law school. And then after my clerkships, I worked at a variety of reproductive rights organizations in the policy advocacy space, not in the litigation space. So the Center for Reproductive Rights, the ACLU, the National Partnership for Women and Families. During that time, and since Roe, as you mentioned earlier, the scales have been tilting slowly against national right to reproductive freedom. Not unidirectional, but it's moved slowly to what we just had, where it got undone. How did you experience that retrogression as we, as time went by and you were in these various roles? I think that's exactly right. We, for a long time, described it as a, a chipping away at the right to abortion, um, to abortion access. And, you know, even, even from day one, almost of Roe, there were certainly communities of color, low-income communities, marginalized communities that, that never had the access that Roe promised. That's something that the, the reproductive justice movement in particular- Public has- funding in Congress and elsewhere was pretty much impossible to achieve. It wasn't achieved. It wasn't achieved, you know, whether that was impossible or whether it wasn't prioritized. You know, I think there, there are a lot of questions about how, how do we think about what it means to have a right, quote unquote, versus actually having access and having that right be full and embodied and meaningful. It already hasn't been for so many people. And yet, and yet, what we have now post Dobbs is worse, right? So both things can be true. I look back at the the chipping away, the hacking away, you know, maybe a, a, a stronger verb if we can find one. And that, that really went into high gear after the, the 2010 election when so many state legislatures turned red and that continued and continued even despite all of that, I was caught off guard when the court announced that it was going to hear the Dobbs case. They sat on that petition for a long time, for months and months and months. They had a lot of other cases that they could have decided to hear that would have continued that kind of more incremental 
insidious path where they were better able to try to disguise what they were doing. And even with the three Trump justices on the court put there for the purpose of overturning Roe, I still thought up until May of 2021 that they were going to take their time with it and they were going to go a little slower. How naive was I when they did announce in May of 2021 that they were going in this direction, that they were going to take on this this full frontal attack on Roe so so immediately um, after Justice Barrett had been put on the court, really stopped me in my tracks. Really stopped me in my tracks and made me think about how how do I want to be approaching this work? What is the most important thing that I can be doing for the preservation of reproductive rights at this moment in time? That is when I I realize that for me that that work needs to be Supreme Court reform, Supreme Court expansion. And less than two months later, I was lucky enough to be able to join the team and take back the court. When you think about the the justices that are on the right on the court, the Thomases and the Gorsuches and the Kavanaugh's and the fights that were lost electorally and, and in the Senate that led to them being put on there. Do you see them as legitimate justices? Do you see them as whole persons with a legitimate perspective on the law? Or do you see them as, I don't know, puppets or wrongfully chosen members? I mean, they've been barely confirmed, a lot of them. They sometimes were the result of McConnell machinations in the Senate that made up new rules each time. They were sometimes a result of presidential elections that the court itself had, like in 2000, decided the winner, maybe against the electoral college or or the vote in Florida. How do you think about those members of the court, kind of in the same context that we talked about institutions and looking up to the systems that we have? How do you think about those members who are so, like, so different in their political viewpoints than you and me? There's a lot to unpack there. A majority of the sitting justices were appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote. So I I think we can't overstate- But they they were elected president. How important that is. As we think about the, the legitimacy of the institution as a whole and the role that it plays in our government, right? There is a really kind of cavernous disconnect between the court and the people that it governs. And that disconnect undermines its legitimacy, right? Governments derive legitimacy from the consent of the governed. It's a basic fundamental principle to our democracy. Republicans have controlled the Supreme Court for more than 50 years, despite losing the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. And so when we see that the court has been governed by Republicans for the last 50 years, there have been studies showing that without 
structural change, real structural change. It's going to be governed by Republicans for the next 50 years. You have 100 years backwards and forwards of single party control of this entire branch of our government, regardless of how voters have voted in elections. And when you look at the picture like that, there's just something deeply, deeply wrong that is greater than what machinations uh, took place for the appointment um, of any any particular justice. Although, as you said, there certainly were machinations that speak to that legitimacy as well. But I think sometimes we lose sight of, of this bigger picture and, and what does it mean? What is, how should the court have some measure of accountability, some measure of connection. Uh, and when you look at it, how it's comprised right now, it is just so completely beyond the pale. So how do you think of them individually? I, I certainly have a lot, a lot of thoughts about them individually. I mean, I think, you know, what we can say, and I would say this is pretty, pretty clear to anyone who's paying attention, is that the conservative justices are acting as an arm of the Republican Party, right? They kind of fancy themselves basically the legal department of the RNC. And you can see that in their actions. You can see that in the way that they have systematically dismantled voting rights over time, the way that they went out of their way to make sure that for this upcoming election in 2022, that there were racially gerrymandered maps put in place that lower courts had enjoined, right? The court reached out in Alabama and Louisiana saying, no, no, let's put these racist maps back in place for 2022. Let's make sure they're there. You can see it in decisions big and small. You can see it in their time on the lecture circuit. They tut, tut, tut a lot and make a lot of claims about how, you know, they're not politicians in robes, or as Amy Coney Barrett said, I think partisan hacks. But um, I, I think one benefit, if you can call it that, uh, of how brazen um, their actions are, um, is that the American people really are understanding that they are politicians in robes. And you can see that in the way that trust in the court, approval for the court has just absolutely cratered and continues to go down and down and down because this isn't a court that deserves the people's trust. There's that upcoming case about whether the legislature alone outside of the court system, outside of the governor in the states will have the power to appoint electors or is the final say in election laws in the states. When you look at that, that would seem to come right under this category of like, are they partisan hacks? How will they approach that thing? Because there are these states which have gerrymandered themselves red legislatures, even if they are purple or blue states or have courts that would be quite independent or would have governors of the other party. How do you think about that case as a test of this? Or what are you thinking about that? As I'm sure that's got to be on your mind. So that case, it's called Moore versus Harper, should terrify everyone, should absolutely terrify everyone. And here's why. It's based on something called the, the 
the so-called independent state legislature theory. Theory gives it far, far more legitimacy than it deserves, right? It's this crackpot idea that um, has not been supported by any credible legal experts, and it would severely undermine our democracy by handing unprecedented power to state legislatures to determine how federal elections are held, or even select the winners regardless of how people vote. That is what is at stake here. and something that no one has taken seriously for a hundred years, but it is a scheme that would hand over power to Republicans regardless of how people vote. And so you have a lot of justices on this court now really eyeing it favorably because that is part of their agenda as well. If this so-called theory had been in effect in 2020, Donald Trump could have succeeded in stealing the election. It really is that grave. You know, it was referenced time and time again in attempts to overturn the 2020 election results. And it's now on the docket before the Supreme Court this term. Folks can disagree and do disagree about kind of what will will the court take a maximalist view of this? Will the court kind of take a midpoint view? But the, the fact that they're entertaining it at all and opening the door, the fact that they're opening the door in and of itself is really pernicious. And whether they go all the way in this one case or not, you know, we've seen this is something the court can do. They open the door to these theories um, that have, you know, previously been understood as bonkers, and then they make their way um, into law. Maybe it's over a couple of terms. Maybe it's all at once. But I think the very fact that this is on the docket um, should should have everyone concerned and speaks to the fact that the conservative justices don't feel like there's anything holding them back. There's nothing constraining them. They are going to go all in and double down on putting a, a, a Republican agenda in place by judicial fiat. I think that's really, really clear. You said that you were basically shocked and taken aback by Dobbs. Will you be surprised if they decide? I mean, the words in the Constitution are the times, places, and manner of holding elections by senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. But the Congress may at any time by law make and alter such regulations. It falls right into their wheelhouse of it gives them the opportunity to read that, read those words like in a certain way out of context of democratic systems and say, it says legislature, it meant legislature. Even if the research around it doesn't say that, that has been the the way that they make calls like this, right? Will you be surprised if they interpret this this way and give the right to the states to make their own laws only in the legislature? Given what this court has shown us and what it has done, no one should be surprised by the court taking the most reactionary, the most anti-democracy, the most insurrectionist positions possible. That is what they are going to do. Now, the nuances of how they do it in any one case 
you know, that may be up for grabs, but their agenda is clear and we need to be clear eyed about seeing it so we can understand it, we can address it and we can take action to rein in this completely out of control Supreme Court. What was Take Back the Court when you joined it? What was the status of it? How far along was it? What were the materials that you had at your disposal when you joined? So Take Back the Court was founded about four years ago by my colleague, Aaron Belkin, who is a a political science professor. I think you had him on the show maybe about a a year or so ago. Yes. Aaron, to his credit, he put this issue on the table when nobody else was talking about it. Nobody else was thinking about it. There were zero organizations working on Supreme Court expansion when Take Back the Court was founded. I came on board in June of 2021, you know, shortly after the Supreme Court announced that it it was going to be hearing the Dobbs case, um, which it then decided just this last summer. And already folks had made really incredible strides in terms of putting this issue on the map. I mean, folks had talked about it during presidential primaries, a bunch of candidates took positions on the issue, talked about it um, during debates. Um, There was a bill introduced for the first time in April of of 2021, the Judiciary Act, which would um, expand the Supreme Court by four seats. The team had really put some great fundamentals in place in moving this work really from theory to actual advocacy. When you look at that in social justice time, it's really incredible how fast it moved. And in the last year and change, since I've been at Take Back the Court and working with the team, you know, I think we, we've really moved, again, in social justice time and warp speed. We have more than 130 organizations that support court expansion now. Again, that's from zero four years ago from something you know, I pro- probably, if you called it fringe, it'd be generous because it just wasn't on the radar. It wasn't on the radar. Um, and now, um, you know, it's become a, a, a fundamental part of democracy reform for folks who are serious about democracy reform. We have a bill with more than 60 members of Congress. If I had told you uh, that, that we would have more than 60 members of Congress on a bill to expand the Supreme Court, a couple of years ago, you probably would have laughed me out of the room. The work um, that has happened over the last few years, certainly the court itself has propelled this work forward much more so than, than any of us could have with its deeply, deeply radical, deeply reactionary decisions that are, are impacting folks all across the country. And we saw just a few weeks ago in a poll from Marquette that now um, for the first time, we see a majority of the public supporting Supreme Court expansion. Again, something that wasn't on anyone's radar just a few years ago. And as the court like continues to take these steps that are so radically out of step with the American people and that have such devastating impacts on our lives. You know, I mean, sometimes people talk about the court in this kind of you know, esoteric way. Oh, is it originalism? This, oh, this theory, that. There are millions of people across the country who cannot access abortion care. There are people who can't access chemo to treat their cancer 
because they're pregnant and they're not able to terminate their pregnancies to get access to this care. I mean, there are kids who are afraid to go to school and parents who are afraid to send them because this court is unleashing more gun violence into our communities. I mean, these are not points of legal theory to debate. They impact our lives in real tangible and sometimes life and death ways all of the time. People around the country are feeling that in their lives and they don't want to live that way. They don't want to be beholden to Sam Alito's vision of the 1800s and the kind of country that he wants to take us back to. It's it's not what people want and they're not going to stand for it. And support for expansion is growing all the time because of that. I am very unhappy with the makeup of the current Supreme Court, as you are. How does adding four justices solve the problem without a whole lot of other necessary conditions taking place? We'd have to have big enough majorities to get that through. We'd have to have the presidency to sign it. And then we'd have to get through four progressive appointments all at once, I assume. We don't have that at the moment. We may have it less in a month. Is this the only solution to the problem? What are the alternatives? There are a lot of challenges that we face in the the fight for Supreme Court expansion, but we don't have an option not to take this on. The court, as currently constituted, is intent on dismantling our democracy. And so if we want to preserve our democracy, if we want to preserve or reattain our fundamental rights, we have to change the structure of this court. And so the work might be hard, but we have to do it. Now, you asked whether there are other kinds of solutions, other reforms to the court. And there are a bunch of reforms that would be great. It would be great if there were a code of ethics that actually applied to this court and that the justices abided by. I mean, what kind of democracy do we live in where the wife of a Supreme Court justice is participating in the insurrection and efforts to steal the 2020 election. And then you have her husband, a Supreme Court justice, ruling on those cases. That is not how this is supposed to work in a country that cares about the rule of law. So, of course, we should have a code of ethics. Folks talk about term limits. Term limits are a great reform. They don't tackle the crisis that we're facing right now. Only Supreme Court expansion would immediately wrest control away from the justices that are intent on undoing democracy. And then once we have that in place, once we have a court that, again, cares about the rule of law and won't just strike down all of these other reforms as a way to try to hold on to their power, we can put those reforms in place. There's a lot that we need to do to reform the institutions, but we can't get around the necessity of expansion by lamenting how hard it is. You know, it's it's hard to do important things sometimes. If you wait 
until it seems like the stars are perfectly aligned to begin working on an ambitious reform, you're never going to get it done, right? Because we started working on this when we did, when Republicans controlled the White House, right? Because we started back four years ago, there's more support for expansion now today than there would have been if we had just started in January of 2021. And I think that's a reminder of the importance of sustained organizing, sustained education, even when success seems like it's a long way off. Couldn't we impeach Clarence Thomas, for example, Brett Kavanaugh? That would be another way to remove a vote and replace it with someone less ethically challenged. Look, I I, I think Kavanaugh's actions, the lack of a a real FBI investigation into the charges against him at the time of his nomination, Justice Thomas's ethical failings time and and time again, deserve attention, deserve to be called out. It takes two-thirds vote in the Senate to impeach. If we are able to pass filibuster reform, which we are so close, we've been so close, um, and so much incredible work has gone into that fight, court expansion should take 51. That is a huge difference when we're dealing with a Republican Party that has put so much effort and, 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 and so many imaginations for the purpose of controlling the Supreme Court, and they're not going to give up control. But wouldn't they just come, wouldn't they... The next time they got the Senate, which is because of the way the country is carved up, more likely for them to hold currently because of their advantage in rural areas, wouldn't they just add two more and flip it back the other way? I mean, how how does this not put us in a back and forth? And and just imagine how, I mean, I don't want to like be controlled by their bullshit anger, but like you can guarantee that there's going to be a political reaction on the right to us installing four progressive justices all at once. Look, I mean, Republicans have already changed the size of the Supreme Court to their advantage, right? They did it when they shrank it from nine to eight without passing proper legislation when they blockaded Merrick Garland's nomination. And Republicans have shown us time and time again that if there is a power move they can make that they think is advantageous to them, they'll do it and they'll do it regardless of what Democrats did or didn't do. You know, they don't need Democrats to show them. So the argument is we have to make power moves. We do have to make power moves. And I think it's also like a little thicker than that, right? Um, You know, saying we're worried about what Republicans might do later if we take these actions now to try to protect democracy, well, that just ensures that the status quo in which these six anti-democracy justices reign and continue to arrogate power to themselves, that that just continues. So even if, even if the result is that we expand the court now, that we're able to put into place real voting rights legislation that's then upheld, our elected officials might better reflect um, the will of the American people that we can put back in place some protections for abortion rights. That is a far better situation than if we never act. I've seen the argument that merely the threat of expanding the court 
And the way public opinion has changed and the number of members of Congress who are now open to it has the potential to change judicial behavior. Do you buy that? The discourse on expansion, right, being a real part, a serious part of the political fabric has helped us have a real conversation about the true nature of the court and take away this sense that it is sacrosanct and immutable and isn't a political actor, you know, can't ever be reformed. I think that's so important. When there was a five justice conservative majority, I think the ability to impact the court just through conversation about expansion was more viable. You know, with this six justice supermajority that seem very intent on going all in on their reactionary agenda, I do think we, we actually need to move expansion in, into enacted policy, and that is the way forward. Tell me a little bit about how you at Take Back the Court are going about the business of advocating for this and building political support. So we work across various spectrums. We're having conversations with congressional offices all of the time to help them see the necessity of Supreme Court expansion, you know, help lift up their their own efforts in taking on the court. We've seen time and time again, kind of this process that folks go through. First, you know, oh, it's the Supreme Court, you know, we can't touch it, we're just kind of stuck with it. Then they start to see how, how detrimental and dangerous the court is. They, then they start to acknowledge the illegitimacy of the court, right, and the threat that it poses to democracy. And then they begin to look for solutions. So this arc takes some time. We work closely with organizations all across the progressive movement to have these same kinds of conversations with them about the court and, and what the court means for the issues that they care most about. I mean, there is so much important work going on right now in the reproductive rights space, in the climate space, and spaces all across the progressive movement where the actions of the court deeply, deeply impact the work that folks are doing, but they don't necessarily have the time and capacity to devote more bandwidth to that, right? So we'll try to work with those organizations and help provide resources to them to engage in the work in, of court reform in ways that really matter to them and to their constituencies, but that they wouldn't otherwise necessarily be able to do. You know, where we talk to, to grassroots activists, we were just at the Netroots Nation conference this summer, putting together a, a keynote presentation um, with in incredible folks from Black Voters Matter, from We Testify Abortion Storytellers, to talk with activists um, about what the court means for these issues that they care most about. We're doing work in D.C., we're doing work with organizations all across the country and with folks on the ground. What would you say is the state of those conversations? Like, who is not on board yet and why and what kind of responses are you getting as you make that kind of outreach into the Congress and into the progressive ecosystem? 
it's an arc. It's an arc of conversation. A lot of people come into the conversation with a set of assumptions about the court that we've all kind of been raised up on, right? They're just kind of like in the ether, you know, that it's a body wholly separate from politics. Folks put on those robes and leave aside any notion that, you know, a number of these conservative justices, you know, work, worked on Bush v. Gore, right? I mean, they, they were lawyers for the Republican Party and they continue to be lawyers for the Republican Party. Breaking through that shell is the the most important and first step. It can take time to do that, but once the cracks are there, and again, the court is putting those a lot of those cracks there by their own actions, people tend to move very quickly to understanding that we need real solutions to this problem. If we're in a time of Trumpism where we're making the argument that we need to protect norms we need to protect institutions from attack by anti-democratic forces. Do we get ourselves into a vice when we ourselves find it necessary to also say this institution is corrupt, is wrongly constituted, needs to be changed? It feels tough right now to me to, to make this argument. I fully like understand where you're coming from. But I feel a little in a vice about it because of the nature of the times. Like the court itself is taking a torch to its own legitimacy. That is happening. And people see that happening, right? Like American people, they're not dumb. They see it. They get it. Acting to reform the court is an action to help save the court, to help restore its legitimacy, to help restore its integrity. We haven't talked about this yet, but it is wholly within Congress's power and, in fact, within Congress's responsibility to set the size of the Supreme Court, right? That is something they're supposed to do, and they've done it through legislation a number of times in the nation's history. And so to let this set of six unelected justices kind of run away with our country with zero accountability that doesn't serve the institution. Papering that over doesn't serve the institution. If you really care about the legitimacy of, of the Supreme Court in our government, then you, you should be in the front of the line for reform. Who are your best allies in making this happen? Oh, that's such a good question because we have so many incredible folks that we work with across all sorts of issue areas. So I first would have to say to the, you know, the incredible members of Congress who have really stepped forward, who were there before it was popular, right? Senator Ed Markey, um, Congressman Nadler, Congressman Johnson, Congressman Jones really took this on um, and have been at, at the cutting edge um, of this democracy reform uh, and in really incredible ways. Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Tina Smith, making really clear how essential reform is, especially um, the, the impact on reproductive rights. We work with coalition of reproductive rights organiza state organizations that are on the ground um, leading the charge in, in their states to protect abortion rights and who have been incredible allies in this fight. Indivisible 
uh, Liu Conservation Voters, SEIU, so many, um, so many organizations, uh, Sunrise Movement, stepping forward um, and doing such critical work. And forgive me, amazing partners, if I didn't just include your names because we value so, so deeply. Are you happy with where the president is on this? He proposed a commission to look into this, last I knew. What came of that, and are you happy with where Joseph Biden is? Like, I think the most interesting thing to have come out of the White House uh, Supreme Court Commission um, was an example of that that arc that we were just talking about, kind of how folks moved down this path. So there were commissioners that came into that process just absolutely sure that no reform was needed. Okay, maybe we might need something at the margins. Um, came out of that process of something like six to nine months of study, absolutely, absolutely convinced that expansion is necessary to save democracy, to save the institution. Um, that's folks like uh, former federal judge Nancy Gertner, Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribe, University of Pennsylvania law professor Kermit Roosevelt, Georgetown law professor at Caroline Fredrickson, and they've each written about that process and kind of how that evolution happened for them. That's valuable. That's interesting. And also that commission, that that wasted a lot of time when we could have been acting. But it felt like it was designed to. Like a lot of times commissions are designed to like take the political pressure off and funnel it into a, a thing that is not as much of a threat. I, I think that's right. That is a correct assessment of how that happened. And we've been saying that, you know, since the inception of the commission. And also this issue isn't one that's going away. It's not something that can be cabined. If anything, now it is more explosive than it was at the beginning of President Biden's term with the actions that the court has taken with abortion rights, with gun safety, with climate. I think it was just the other day that Biden said something like, these justices are acting like an advocacy group um, and not like justices. And I think that's an absolutely correct assessment. That's not where he was uh, so many months ago. And so there, there is progress happening. There's movement happening, but it's not happening fast enough, right? Folks who right now cannot get the abortion that they need, like this isn't happening fast enough. But on that front, we could put, we could pass a, a law in Congress to solve that, right? National law. What do you think would happen to that law when somebody challenged it and it went to the Supreme Court? I mean, this is a court that let Texas ban abortion when Roe was still in place. Now that they've gotten rid of Roe, you think they're just going to sit back and let a federal abortion rights legislation stand? They're not going to do that. And we need to be real about that. Like, yes, absolutely. We need to pass abortion rights legislation. It is something I have worked on for, I'm not going to tell you how many years and how old I am, but like a very long time. And that absolutely needs to happen. But if we're serious about wanting to protect abortion rights, can't leave that in the hands of these six justices who have made very clear that they will not let abortion rights stand. So we have to do both things and we have to be clear-eyed about needing to do both things. And just the one is not sufficient. So what do you think is the precipitating event that allows this to happen. You've kind of suggested this sort of a 
gathering interest in this that you're promoting, but is it the state legislature theory then leading to a a stolen election for the right that dramatizes what the court did? Does there have to be something even more egregious than Dobbs for this to actually wake up the voters to vote on this issue rather than on inflation or a, a million other things? What does it take politically to get something like this over the finish line? Who can say what any one particular precipitating event is, right? I mean, I think it's all of these pieces that are coming together. You've seen the reaction from folks across the country to the court's actions in Dobbs. I mean, look what happened in Kansas with those incredible numbers of folks coming out. We don't want. But that was an election based on that one on that one dimension, as opposed to like a national election where we've got everything in play and where we're we're a very evenly divided country, unfortunately, like over and over, not elections that progressives and Democrats, partially because of the way the system is established, but basically we don't have a dominant political majority to lean on to remedy things. I mean, I think when you look at how people feel about abortion, you'll see we're not evenly divided. When you look at how people feel about the importance of tackling climate change, we are not evenly divided. Abortion rights, action on climate, action on gun safety, these are all incredibly popular things. And as the court's actions impact more and more folks' lives in real ways, we see incredible movement toward recognizing that we have to do something about this court. We did some polling that looked at how 2020 Biden voters um, feel about reform and expansion. Um, and uh, they, you know, so support it in overwhelming numbers. And even more so when you start to give them just a little bit of education about the state of the court, a little bit more information. And so the court is going to continue on this reactionary path folks around the country are going to do more and more to demand this change. The question isn't like whether electeds are going to come on board with expansion. The question is, are they going to do it after it's too late to do something about it? This is all moving in a one-way ratchet direction. The work that we're doing, the work that our partners are doing um, is about putting these pieces in place so that when we do have a window when we do have a moment when the stars are aligned, we've done all of the hard work to make passage of expansion possible. Because what is the other option? I mean, the only other option is to wait, possibly for the 50 years that you envision, but possibly less time for the right wing to die out on the court. Women don't have time to wait. People of color don't have time to wait. Folks in the LGBTQ community don't have time to wait. Our climate doesn't have time to wait. We don't have time to wait. And also that overlooks the concerted actions of this court in putting in place minority rule that is like impossible to unlock despite the will of the voters. A wait strategy isn't, isn't, isn't something that I can endorse, certainly. And it's something that I think, you know, the majority of Americans really can't abide by. Look, I get it's hard. Um, I get it's hard, but it's important. Um, and important things are sometimes difficult. 
Well, I appreciate that you are out there pushing this. I hope that we solve the problem of a retrogressive Supreme Court that is really out of touch. And I wonder if there's a question that I failed to ask you that I should have. How can people learn more about the fight for court expansion? How can they learn more about the fight for court expansion? Where should they go? How can they participate? Please, please check us out, takebackthecourt.today. We have a ton of information about court expansion, how it works, how you can get involved, what issues um, it impacts, how it relates to the things you really care about in your life, and follow us on social media. Thanks much, Sarah. That was Sarah Lipton Lebet. She's at takebackthecourt.today. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.